This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It's read by Sir Richard Burton with John Neville and Robert Hardy. It runs just over 31 minutes. This recording comes to us from Resonance.fm's Voices on Record program, and as the name suggests, it is a recording from a record, so the sound quality might not be what you're used to. However, I actually feel that the record sound quality matches up very well to the poem's arcane language and subject matter. I'll be discussing the poem afterwards with Jesse and Mr. Jim Moon. It is an ancient mariner, and he stoppeth one of three. By thy long grey beard and glittering eye, now wherefore stopst thou me? The bridegroom's doors are open wide, and I am next of kin. The guests are met, the feast is set, mayst hear the merry din. He holds him with his skinny hand. There was a ship, quoth he. Hold off, unhand me, greybeard loon. Eft soon his hand dropped he. He holds him with his glittering eye. The wedding guest stood still, and listens like a three years child. The mariner hath his will. The wedding guest sat on a stone. He cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. The ship was cheered, the harbour cleared. Merrily did we drop below the kirk, below the hill, below the lighthouse top. The sun came up upon the left, out of the sea came he, and he shone bright, and on the right went down into the sea. Higher and higher every day, till over the mast at noon. The wedding guest here beat his breast, for he heard the loud bassoon. The bride hath paced into the hall, red as a rose is she, nodding their heads before her goes the merry minstrelsy. The wedding guest he beat his breast, yet he cannot choose but hear. And thus spake on that ancient man, the bright-eyed mariner. And now the storm-blast came, and he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his oar-taking wings, and chased us south along. With sloping masts and dipping prowers, who pursued with yell and blow, still treads the shadow of his foe, and forward bends his head. The ship drove fast, loud roared the blast, and southward aye we fled. And now there came both mist and snow, and it grew wondrous cold. And ice mast high came floating by, as green as emerald. And through the drifts the snowy clifts did send a dismal sheen. Nor shapes of men nor beasts we ken. The ice was all between. The ice was here, the ice was there, the ice was all around. It cracked and growled and roared and howled like noises in a swound. At length did cross an albatross. Thorough the fog it came. As if it had been a Christian soul, we hailed it in God's name. It ate the food, it ne'er had it, and round and round it flew. The ice did split with a thunder fit, the helmsman steered us through. A good south wind sprung up behind, the albatross did follow, and every day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. In mist or cloud, on mast or shroud, it perched for vespers nine, 
whiles all the night through fog smoke white glimmered the white moonshine. God save thee, ancient mariner, from the fiends that plague thee thus. Why lookst thou so? With my crossbow I shot the albatross. The sun now rose upon the right. Out of the sea came he, still hid in mist, and on the left went down into the sea. And the good south wind still blew behind, but no sweet bird did follow. Nor any day for food or play came to the mariner's hollow. And I had done a hellish thing, and it would work them woe. For all averred I had killed the bird that made the breeze to blow. Ah, wretch, said they, the bird to slay that made the breeze to blow. Nor dim, nor red, like God's own head, the glorious sun uprist. Then all averred I had killed the bird that brought the fog and mist. Twas right, said they, such birds to slay that bring the fog and mist. The fair breeze blew, the white foam flew, the furrow followed free. We were the first that ever burst into that silent sea. Down dropped the breeze, the sails dropped down, t'was sad as sad could be. And we did speak only to break the silence of the sea. All in a hot and copper sky, the bloody sun at noon, right up above the mast did stand no bigger than the moon. Day after day, day after day, we stuck nor breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. The very deep did rot, oh, Christ, that ever this should be. Yea, slimy things did crawl with legs upon the slimy sea. About, about, in reel and rout, the death fires danced at night. The water, like a witch's oils, burnt green and blue and white. And some in dreams assured were of the spirit that plagued us so. Nine fathom deep he had followed us from the land of mist and snow. And every tongue through utter drought was withered at the root. We could not speak no more than if we had been choked with soot. Ah, well a day, what evil looks had I from old and young. Instead of the cross, the albatross about my neck was hung. There passed a weary time. Each throat was parched and glazed each eye. A weary time, a weary time. How glazed each weary eye. When looking westward I beheld a something in the sky. At first it seemed a little speck and then it seemed a mist. It moved and moved and took at last a certain shape I wist. A speck, a mist, a shape I wist. And still it neared and neared as if it dodged a water sprite. It plunged and tacked and veered. With throats unslaked, with black lips baked, we could not laugh nor wail. Through utter drought all dumb we stood. I bit my arm, I sucked the blood and cried, A sail, a sail. 
With throats unslaked, with black lips baked agape, they heard me call. Gramercy, they for joy did grin, and all at once their breath drew in as they were drinking all. See, see, I cried, she tax no more, hither to work us wheel. Without a breeze, without a tide, she steadies with upright keel. The western wave was all aflame, the day was well nigh done. Almost upon the western wave rested the broad, bright sun, when that strange shape drove suddenly betwixt us and the sun. And straight the sun was flecked with bars, heaven's mother send us grace, as if through a dungeon grate he peered with broad and burning face. Alas, thought I, and my heart beat loud, how fast she nears and nears, are those her sails that glance in the sun like restless gossamers? Are those her ribs through which the sun did peer as through a grate? And is that woman all her crew? Is that a death? And are there two? Is death that woman's mate? Her lips were red, her looks were free, her locks were yellow as gold. Her skin was as white as leprosy. The nightmare, life in death, was she who thicks man's blood with cold. The naked hulk alongside came, and the twain were casting dice. The game is done, I've won, I've won, quoth she, and whistles thrice. The sun's rim dips, the stars rush out, at one stride comes the dark. With far-heard whisper o'er the sea, off shot the spectre bark. We listened and looked sideways up. Fear at my heart, as at a cup my life-blood seemed to sip. The stars were dim and thick the night. The steerman's face by his lamp gleamed white. From the sails the dew did drip, till clomb above the eastern bar the horned moon with one bright star within the nether tip. One after one by the star-dogged moon, too quick for groan or sigh, each turned his face with a ghastly pang, and cursed me with his eye. Four times fifty living men, and I heard nor sigh nor groan. With heavy thump, a lifeless lump, they dropped down one by one. The souls did from their bodies fly. They fled to bliss or woe. And every soul, it passed me by, like the whiz of my crossbow. I fear thee, ancient mariner, I fear thy skinny hand, for thou art long and lank and brown as is the ribbed sea sand. I fear thee and thy glittering eye, and thy skinny hand so brown. Fear not, fear not, thou wedding guest, this body drop not down. Alone, alone, all, all, alone, alone, wide, wide sea. And never a saint took pity on my soul in agony. The many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a thousand, thousand slimy things lived on, and so did I. I looked upon the rotting sea and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the rotting deck and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but or ever a prayer had gushed, 
A wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. I closed my lids and kept them close, and the balls like pulses beat. For the sky and the sea and the sea and the sky lay like a load on my weary eye, and the dead were at my feet. The cold sweat melted from their limbs, nor rot nor rook did they. The look with which they looked on me had never passed away. An orphan's curse would drag to hell a spirit from on high. But oh, more horrible than that is the curse in a dead man's eye. Seven days, seven nights I saw that curse, and yet I could not die. The moving moon went up the sky and nowhere did abide. Softly she was going up and a star or two beside. Her beams bemocked the sultry main like April hoarfrost spread. But where the ship's huge shadow lay, the charmed water burnt alway as still and awful red. Beyond the shadow of the ship I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white, and when they reared the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. Within the shadow of the ship I watched their rich attire, blue, glossy green, and velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. Oh, happy living things! No tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Sure, my kind saint took pity on me, and I blessed them unaware. The selfsame moment I could pray, and from my neck so free the albatross fell off and sank like lead into the sea. Oh, sleep! It is a gentle thing, beloved from pole to pole. To Mary Queen, the praise be given. She sent the gentle sleep from heaven that slid into my soul. The silly buckets on the deck that had so long remained, I dreamt that they were filled with dew, and when I awoke, it rained. My lips were wet, my throat was cold, my garments all were dank. Sure, I had drunken in my dreams, and still my body drank. I moved and could not feel my limbs. I was so light, almost I thought that I had died in sleep, and was a blessed ghost. And soon I heard a roaring wind. It did not come anear, but with its sound it shook the sails that were so thin and sere. The upper air burst into life, and a hundred fireflag sheen. To and fro they were hurried about, and to and fro and in and out the wan stars danced between. And the coming wind did roar more loud, and the sails did sigh like sedge. And the rain poured down from one black cloud. The moon was at its edge. The thick black cloud was cleft, and still the moon was at its side. Like water shot from some high crag, the lightning fell with never a jag, a river steep and wide. The loud wind never reached the ship, yet now the ship moved on. Beneath the lightning and the moon, the dead men gave a groan. They groaned. 
They stirred, they all uprose, nor spake, nor moved their eyes. It had been strange, even in a dream, to have seen those dead men rise. The helmsman steered, the ship moved on, yet never a breeze up blew. The mariners all gan work the ropes where they were wont to do. They raised their limbs like lifeless tools. We were a ghastly crew. The body of my brother's son stood by me knee to knee. The body and I pulled at one rope, but he said naught to me. I fear thee, ancient mariner. Be calm, thou wedding guest. Twas not those souls that fled in pain, which to their courses came again, but a troop of spirits blessed. But when it dawned, they dropped their arms and clustered round the mast. Sweet sounds rose slowly through their mouths and from their bodies passed. Around, around flew each sweet sound, then darted to the sun. Slowly the sounds came back again, now mixed, now one by one. Sometimes a dropping from the sky, I heard the skylark sing. Sometimes all little birds that are... How they seem to fill the sea and air with their sweet jargoning. And now it was like all instruments, now like a lonely flute. And now it is an angel song that makes the heavens be mute. It ceased, yet still the sails made on a pleasant noise till noon. A noise like of a hidden brook in the leafy month of June. That to the sleeping woods all night singeth a quiet Till noon we quietly sailed on, yet never a breeze did breathe. Slowly and smoothly went the ship, moved onward from beneath. Under the keel nine fathom deep, from the land of mist and snow, the spirit slid, and it was he that made the ship to go. The sails at noon left off their tune, and the ship stood still also. The sun right up above the mast had fixed her to the ocean, but in a minute she gan stir with a short, uneasy motion, backwards and forwards half her length with a short, uneasy motion. Then, like a pawing horse let go, she made a sudden bound. It flung the blood into my head, and I fell down in a swound. How long in that same fit I lay, I have not to declare. But ere my living life returned, I heard, and in my soul discerned, two voices in the air. Is it he, quoth one, is this the man by him who died on cross? With his cruel bow he laid full low the harmless albatross. The spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. The other was a softer voice, as soft as honeydew. Quoth he, The man hath penance done, and penance more will do. But tell me, tell me, speak again, thy soft response renewing. What makes that ship drive on so fast? What is the ocean doing? Still as a slave before his lord, the ocean hath no blast. His great bright eye most silently up to the moon is cast. 
if he may know which way to go, for she guides him smooth or grim. See, brother, see how graciously she looketh down on him. But why drives on that ship so fast without a wave or wind? The air is cut away before and closes from behind. Fly, brother, fly, more high, more high, or we shall be belated. For slow and slow that ship will go when the mariner's trance is abated. I woke and we were sailing on as in a gentle weather. Twas night, calm night, the moon was high, the dead men stood together. All stood together on the deck for a charnel dungeon fitter. All fixed on me their stony eyes that in the moon did glitter. The pang, the curse with which they died had never passed away. I could not draw my eyes from theirs nor turn them up to pray. And now this spell was snapped once more. I viewed the ocean green and looked far forth, yet little saw of what had else been seen. Like one that on a lonesome road doth walk in fear and dread, and having once turned round walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. But soon there breathed a wind on me, nor sound nor motion made. Its path was not upon the sea in ripple or in shade. It raised my hair, it fanned my cheek like a meadow gale of spring. It mingled strangely with my fears, yet it felt like a welcoming. Swiftly, swiftly flew the ship, yet she sailed softly too. Sweetly, sweetly blew the breeze, on me alone it blew. Oh, dream of joy, is this indeed the lighthouse top I see? Is this the hill, is this the kirk, is this mine own country? We drifted o'er the harbour bar, and I with sobs did pray. Oh, let me be awake, my God, or let me sleep all way. The harbour bay was clear as glass, so smoothly it was strewn. And on the bay the moonlight lay, and the shadow of the moon... The rock shone bright, the kirk no less that stands above the rock. The moonlight steeped in silentness, the steady weathercock. And the bay was white with silent light till rising from the same. Full many shapes that shadows were in crimson colours came. A little distance from the prow those crimson shadows were. I turned my eyes upon the deck. Oh, Christ, what saw I there? Each course lay flat, lifeless and flat, and by the holy rood, a man all light, a seraph man, on every course there stood. This seraph band each waved his hand. It was a heavenly sight. They stood as signals to the land, each one a lovely light. This seraph band each waved his hand, nor voice did they impart. No voice but, oh, the silence sank like music on my heart. But soon I heard the dash of oars, I heard the pilots cheer. My head was turned perforce away, and I saw a boat appear. The pilot and the pilot's boy, I heard them coming fast. Dear Lord, in heaven it was a joy the dead men could not blast. I saw a third, I heard his voice, it is the hermit good. He singeth loud his godly hymns that he makes in the wood. 
He'll shrieve my soul. He'll wash away the albatross's blood. This hermit good lives in that wood which slopes down to the sea. How loudly his sweet voice he rears. He loves to talk with mariners that come from a far country. He kneels at morn and noon and eve. He hath a cushion plump. It is the moss that wholly hides the rotted old oak stump. The skiff boat neared, I heard them talk. Why, this is strange, I trow. Where are those lights so many and fair, that signal made but now? Strange by my faith, the hermit said, and they answered not our cheer. The planks look warped, and see those sails, how thin they are and sere. I never saw aught like to them, unless perchance it were brown skeletons of leaves that lag my forest brook along, when the ivy tod is heavy with snow, and the owlet whoops to the wolf below that eats the she-wolf's young. Dear Lord, it hath a fiendish look, the pilot made reply. I am afeard. Push on, push on, said the hermit cheerily. The boat came closer to the ship, but I nor spake nor stirred. The boat came close beneath the ship, and straight a sound was heard. Under the water it rumbled on, still louder and more dread. It reached the ship, it split the bay. The ship went down like lead. Stunned by that loud and dreadful sound which sky and ocean smote, like one that hath been seven days drowned, my body lay afloat, but swift as dreams myself I found within the pilot's boat. Upon the whirl where sank the ship, the boat spun round and round, and all was still save that the hill was telling of the sound. I moved my lips, the pilot shrieked and fell down in a fit. The holy hermit raised his eyes and prayed where he did sit. I took the oars, the pilot's boy, who now doth crazy go, laughed loud and long, and all the while his eyes went to and fro. Aha, quoth he, full plain I see, the devil knows how to row. And now, all in my own country, I stood on the firm land. The hermit stepped forth from the boat, and scarcely he could stand. Oh, shrieve me, shrieve me, holy man, the hermit crossed his brow. Say quick, quoth he, I bid thee say, what manner of man art thou? Forthwith this frame of mine was wrenched with a woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at an uncertain hour, that agony returns, until my ghastly tale is told. This heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. That moment that his face I see, I know the man that must hear me. To him my tale I teach. What loud uproar bursts from that door. The wedding guests are there. But in the garden bower the bride and bridemaid singing are. And hark the little vesper bell which biddeth me to prayer. O oh, wedding guest, this soul hath been alone on a wide, wide sea. So lonely it was that God himself scarce seemed there to be. O oh, sweeter than the marriage feast, tis sweeter far to me to walk together to the kirk with a goodly company. 
To walk together to the kirk and all together pray, While each to his great father bends, Old men and babes and loving friends, And youths and maidens gay. Farewell, farewell, but this I tell to thee, thou wedding guest. He prayeth well, who loveth well both man and bird and beast. He prayeth best, who loveth best all things both great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. The mariner whose eye is bright, whose beard with age is hoar, is gone. And now the wedding guests turn from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that hath been stunned, and is of sense forlorn. A sadder and a wiser man, he rose the morrow morn. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Seth. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about the rhyme of the ancient mariner, a ballad by uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, first published in 1798, in a book called Lyrical Ballads with a Few Other Poems. And uh, I was listening to a show about lyrical ballads, and they were saying that l- lyrical ballads is kind of an oxymoron, or hmm. uh, it's contradictory. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, because lyric, lyrical is, is a sort of higher form uh, mm-hmm. I suppose I'm not exactly familiar with that, with it as a as a literary form. But yeah, they are they're definitely different. And uh, so the one we're talking about is a ballad, which I guess is a I always think of as a long song or a long story, in which uh, the common folk tell their tales. Is it's that... also kind of yeah, and it's also a specific rhyme scheme where mm-hmm. you've got um, uh, tetrameter, trimeter, uh, yeah, four. Uh, four, four beats, three beats. Yeah, four beats, three beats, four beats, three beats. Um, also means that you can sing uh, the Gilligan's Island theme uh, with this, or, or Amazing Grace. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the same story, actually. Now. Well, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Except um, they're I all think, dead. No, it's uh, Gilligan is the albatross hanging around the professor's neck. Oh. professor's always trying to get out <laughs> off the island. And Gilligan always fucks it up, right? Okay. Isn't that how it works? I don't know. I've never watched It's been a while show. since I saw the show. But it, it, he, he should be able to patch that hole on the ship, right? <laughs> You'd think so, yeah. Um, it's very... It, it's, it's weird, because this is the one poem in here that doesn't use uh, the common speech that they're trying to go for. It has a very uh, opaque... Uh, writing style or uh, vocab maybe so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on at first and also its story is very strange I like it and I think everybody who reads it appreciates something that's going on in it but uh, I was curious why did you pick this Seth? you know I don't know but I guess yeah I guess I do have to defend that don't I? Um, I for some reason was looking through poems and i feel that this is in some way connected with you know modern this is a science fiction and fantasy podcast and i i feel that um in in some sense this is connected or specifically the romantic 
period in general is connected with the modern fantasy, especially, although you probably argue science fiction too. Um, but the, um, obviously the focus on the, um, the unseen world, um, is a big deal to Coleridge mm-hmm. particularly. And so that was big. You know, I thought when I picked it that I would find a lot of cultural illusions and, and literary illusions in modern fantasy, but I, you know, I looked kind of through a Wikipedia article on, on cultural influences in modern pop culture, and I didn't really find much that I recognized, so I was surprised about that. But um, if you look at Coleridge's other writings on, on uh, the primary imagination and kind of how, how the imagination triumphs over... Because a big debate in the 18th century was, you know, rationalism versus empiricism, mm-hmm. you know. Well, mm. is your mind supreme or is everything experienced um, through the senses? And... Coleridge particularly kind of moves beyond that and kind of in some sense says you're asking the wrong questions. Mm-hmm. Um, the human mind is a creative creative faculty. Um, and so that, and obviously I'm a big Tolkien person and mm-hmm. Tolkien has this big sub-creation deal going on in his, in his works where it becomes very important for people to in turn go out and be creators. So... I don't know whether Tolkien has read. I'm sure he's incredibly wide read. He's probably read it. Of course, um, so I, I guess I feel a sense of connection between the Romantic period and modern modern fantasy. Um, I think I think it's there. I, the 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 way uh, I can see the connections are it's it's in the background material, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff. Uh, like for example, Weird Tales, which I'm a big fan of reading or going through, anyways, um, and finding bits to pull out. Uh, they they often had Virgil Finlay illustrating uh, a lot of stories, and one uh, illustration that has no connection to anything actually in the the rest of the the magazine is just a lo- a couple of lines from a few poems here and there, right? Mm-hmm. And there's one Virgil Finlay illustration that takes a couple lines from the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and, you know, does his version of what that those lines look like. They don't look like the Gustave Doré right. illustrations. It's like a guy from the 1930s being chased by a, a night gaunt or something. <laughs> Some sort of a zombie creature is chasing after him, and it comes from just, you know, a couple of one stanza of of this is that the, he who walks along a lonesome road <clears throat> yes and fears to yeah, turn yeah. yeah it's quite beautiful uh, uh quite a beautiful line but also uh, quite a scary picture <laughs> um and there's a lot of little things like that in here i mean there's all the lines that everybody knows like you know water water everywhere and I think it's actually Nary or Nora drop to drink or any drop to drink yeah yeah but we always change it right we improve yeah. it <laughs> Out of water everywhere and not a drop to drink or something like that. There's that other one that's even better that not quite as well known, but people still know it, like a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Oh, beautiful. It's like amazing, oh. yeah. yeah. So it, there, there are cultural influences that have nothing to do with SF as well. Yeah, absolutely. But there is, uh, I, I was thinking like it's kind of very, because it's it, it's about an Antarctic expedition is my guess. No? Yeah, we never, we're well, never really told. Well, you can... You, you, well, it it does do to go to the polar wastes, and you can you can bet your bottom dollar Poe had read this. Yeah, and it was on his it, mind when he wrote uh, Pym. 
Yeah, and, and by a... extension, Lovecraft. And Lovecraft was familiar with this poem That's as well. That's right. Uh, I mean, I think this... What I find interesting about Ancient Mariner is it's kind of... It's written in a retro style in a book that was trying to be, like, you know, hip and modern yeah. in current terms. Um, but it kind of... It, it forms a, a strange kind of bridge because on one hand mm. its themes are full of what the later romantics would go hog wild for. Um, it's, you know, it's prefiguring the gothic yes. um, and the kind of cosmic horror that later weird writers, you'd get gothic and horror stories and that would come, come through. But you've also, it's also harking back to literally proper old ballads that mm-hmm. did, you know, like Tab Robbie Burns's uh, Tam O'Shanter, these, you know, tales in verse of mm-hmm. uh, recorded folklore. And this, you know, it's kind of, it's very much like an artificial bit of folklore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the whole kind of, this kind of, you know, strange story of the doomed mariner is, you know, you can sit quite happily with other maritime folklores, such as tales of mermaids, the... Uh, Sea serpents, mm. um, the Marie Celeste, the Flying Dutchman, <laughs> yeah. um, and also medieval legends of the Wandering Jew. And mm-hmm. um, isn't that Jew mentioned in this actual poem as well? I, I thought there was a line in there. Don't recall. I will. I will keep looking. But keep going, Mister Jimin. So yeah, it's kind of it's just it's just I know it's uh, you know it, this poem particularly got flack as it didn't you know. This poem's not like one of the others, <laughs> as I say on Sesame Street. Um, and it's kind of a throwback, but it is the same like it's looking forward. And it is kind of Coleridge lifting up the, uh, the kind of, you know, really getting to grips with this kind of idea they had in the lyrical ballads. Right. Of um, getting to grips, you know, poetry that inspires awe, fear, terror, sort of transcendence, and really, really going headlong into the sort of the supernatural and the fantastic with it feels i mean it feels like it's it's imbued with the fantastic in the way that i guess the these guys were going for to turn nature into uh a fantasy playground of ex- of experience right so it's not that the sun sets uh supernatural it's that it feels supernatural mm-hmm. and that it works mm-hmm. a transformation within us i think most importantly and that's when when you get to the end of the poem, that's pretty much highlighted. Yeah, so I, I, I'm I'm thinking. I, I was reading about how the form, the poem was created, and it sounds like it was more um, uh, slapdash together than you know one would guess. But uh, I heard I I read in one of a really terrible introduction to uh, like I guess it was mid nineteenth century when people were. Uh, saying this is the greatest piece of literature ever written, <laughs> and anyone who disputes this is an absolute fool. Sort of thing. Um, and you know how boys and men can appreciate every line, but blah blah blah. Uh, but one but of not the, women. Yeah, and then there's no mention of women. Um, Since I'm sure that introduction was written in Victorian <laughs> times. Yeah, it was pretty mm. pretty terrible. But uh, one thing that it, it was talking about was that. Uh, its first inspiration was a dream of a friend of Coleridge's, not not Wordsworth. And uh, then, in one piece of writing, Wordsworth said that, "Oh, I gave him this, and I gave him this, and then he he really took off with it." And we we thought it absolutely needed to be included included in Coleridge. Was ah, well, it doesn't really fit, but um, they also apparently wrote lyrical ballads to 
get enough money together to go to Germany because <laughs> they wanted to go on walking tours yeah. in Germany. And uh, there wasn't enough uh, Wordsworth to fill the book. <laughs> didn't sell the volume if it didn't have enough pages. So it's the same complaint I have about books being too long today. Yeah, um, just filling it up. But in well, this case, yeah, I was gonna say in this case it worked out. Worked uh, out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I read. I had recently read uh, Stephen Gill's biography of Wordsworth, or I read part of it, and he told the same story about Wordsworth essentially coming up with the elements of this, and then Coleridge shaping it. Um, kind of reminds me of that movie Shakespeare in Love. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but mm. uh, I'm sure this didn't actually happen. But there's that scene where uh, where uh, William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe are sitting together, and Shakespeare's like, oh, "I'm working on this play of Ethel and the Pirate's Daughter," and and mm-hmm. and uh, Marlowe's like, "No, no, no, Ethel, no, Ethel it needs to be Juliet." And uh, there's this mm. character named Mercutio, and and Shakespeare's like, "Oh, oh okay." And then he he kind of goes with it, so yeah, it reminds me of you've that. Seen, you've seen that in like so many movies where they have some hi- historical thing, and somebody from the future goes back in time and gives somebody the uh, just a, a little bit better advice, and it turns what <laughs> sounds like they're going to be a complete complete pile of crap into you know the classic we know today. Yeah. Um, but that is a good example of that. Uh, that that one's not particularly a time travel story. <laughs> no, I was going to say. I it don't. feels the same sort of thing that's going on. I thought on. I knew my Elizabethan uh, dates better than that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 I kind of want to see the Pirate's Daughter story. I was looking at the Pirate's Enzance yeah. the other day, and that <laughs> that's, it sounds like it's terrible. Uh, but I was saying, you know, look what they... Uh, their version of special effects back then on stage was, it was words. <laughs> you bring out the major general, he does his song, and everybody's like, wow, what great special effects! He talks so fast! <laughs> because they can't, you know, the the closest other than that would be like having a bladder full of pig's blood under, under your uh, breastplate or something, right? You can't do a lot of set changes and, and 3D special effects. Uh, on a stage, but uh, he does he does an amazing lot of sort of special effectsy uh, rhyming. I mean, there's a lot of good rhyming here, but it feels like I, I, I'm. Cur- what do you guys make of the actual plot of the story? Because it makes not a lot of sense to me. Well, it's got the biggest mystery in in literature, really. One of certainly one of them. I'm, you know, we're never given an external explicit reason why he takes his crossbow and shoots the albatross yeah and but that's also like somebody else was reading points out that that's the only action that the the main character ever takes in the whole story other than responding to everything else he's it's the only it's the only point where he says i did this everything else was like and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. He's redeemed, not by anything he di- did, but just by suffering. Well, there's one other thing that he does do. The only other action verb I can think of is, is um, when he, he – um, I saw the sea snakes, and I blessed them unaware. Right. And so that's, that's the redemption. But, not, but you're right. It's not an agent. Yeah, it's just you're, a choice, right? Uh, is it a choice? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's the question. And what the hell are those sea snakes? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, I think they're sort of eels because it does have sort of the, yeah. the feeling of the Sargasso Sea, uh, another great bit of maritime law. Um, creatures crawling on the, yeah. Yeah, um, the slimy ocean. Mm, yeah, it's, 
Because mm. I show you, this, that's you know, where all eels come from. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the stories go. I don't think that's strictly true, but it's a great idea. That uh, um, I actually, I always read this as kind of. I think we modern readers tend to uh, lose something, so they be not kind of steeped as in the kind of cosmological view that would be common to uh, Coleridge. Was this idea that um, you know you don't die and are judged? There's um, a period of purgatory where you uh, suffer and you know you can pay for mm. your sins and get into heaven. If you're really bad, it's you know mm-hmm. straight. You know you're never getting out. You're going straight to hell. Um, but there was this idea that you know um, you could undergo trial by suffering, and this would be you know would save your soul. And you know, this is that kind of redemptive story. I mean, some critics do call it a salvation story, which mm-hmm. I don't entirely go along with because... Um, it's got a lot of Christian motifs going. It starts with... It has, but it's filtered through this sort of romantic, almost sort of pagan approach of where it's... Um, although there are supernatural powers at work here, they're elemental powers, uh, powers of life and death, not kind of the Christian theology. And, and his redemption is blessing the sea snakes. It's that appreciation yeah. of nature after suffering, after his cruelty of killing the albatross. That's, you know, his voyage is a voyage through purgatory, essentially. Um, I mean, personally, I just go for the albatross. I mean, I see kind of him shooting the albatross is kind of what Poe would have called um, the imp of the perverse. Uh, <laughs> It always it's like a random bit of cruelty, much like um, mm. that kicks off Poe's Black Cat mm. <laughs> and the, uh, the the sort of terrible sort of quasi natural, quasi supernatural um, revenge the world takes on the narrator for that, because you know, kind of for no reason Poe gives us, he just picks up his cat and puts out its eye and Ugh, starts tormenting yeah. it, you know. Uh, and this is, I think this is a similar sort of kind of you know, the evil that bored men do. <laughs> um, For want of an Xbox, <laughs> he shot Albatross. Almost. <laughs> Almost. Um, My Game Boy's batteries then did fail. I shot the Albatross. <laughs> Well, um, okay. Uh, I see that. Now, I want to understand the framing story because I think the framing story is really cool. There's this weird old loon. He's like wandering down the streets. There's a bunch of people going to a wedding, uh, three people going to a wedding, and the crazy man, like, you! (laughs) And this is, sit down here on this rock. I'm going to tell you a story. And I, we get that that's the ancient mariner who's telling his own story, I think. But yeah. <laughs> he is also um, telling it to some random kid, young. Well, I guess he's not a three-year child but exactly. But uh, by the way, that was one of Wordsworth's line. Wordsworth's lines. I can see that. Yeah, um, he says, you know, I'm going to tell you this story. What does this particular kid have to do with it? It seems completely random. Is that? But why are they going to a wedding party? Like, is this just? It, I want to know. Well, <laughs> like, is because he's he says I'm next of kin. I, you know, like right. that's my getting married or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's like I really need to get to that thing, but he's holding him with the twinkling eye after he, he says unhand me. He still holds him. It's like Gandalf at the beginning of the uh, Hobbit. You know. Yeah. yeah. He, he he says you're you're going on this adventure whether you want to or not. Hobbit. Yeah. 
Yeah, pretty much. You're not going to that wedding, Bilbo. <laughs> Sit on this rock and listen to this story. <laughs> <laughs> the graveyard. <laughs> totally exactly what's going on there. Um, oh, man. And at the end of the story, what the, what the hell is the kid supposed to say? It's like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, I think, I think the interesting thing is it, you know, the, the, you know, the, the moral after he wakes a sadder, wiser man. And I, I, I thought long and hard about this over the years, and it's kind of, I, I think it's kind of the wedding feast, you know, it's a young fellow, he's um, probably thinking, much like many young fellows who go to weddings these days <laughs> do, hey, chance to cop off with a bridesmaid, I'm going to drink too much, I'm going to eat too much, I ain't paying for it. Life is good. Yeah. And then this old fella grabs him and goes, you know, you know nothing. This is suffering. <laughs> this is what can happen in life if you're, care- you're careless and fancy-free. It's, and it's, you know, it's really nearly a moral tale of kind of, look, this, you know, your life can be ruined by a careless action like that. Yeah. Watch your step. But he, can't, think, he also can't stop all of them, right? He can't, he can't hur- corral three people. So he just... Picks one to save. Yeah, in a way, um, he mentions this in the end. I'm trying to find it, but when he's telling his story about um, his penance, you know that that is his penance, and it seems like the way it's worded that he's called to speak to certain people. So yeah, there is something. You're right. There is something about this wedding guest that um, draws his attention, and you know maybe he sees some sort of I don't know latent pain or sorrow or you know something in him, and he's like, hey, I can I can help with this. He saw he saw that this kid was weak enough to, to, to <laughs> through this weird ass story, um, but it, it, that as the story get turn takes a turn, like it sounds like he might be about to eat everybody on the crew yeah. who's on the ground there. Um, he's the the boy says, "I fear you, ancient mariner. Let me go." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and he's several times, you know, when he's telling, especially when he's telling the story about the other sailors dying, there's several times when he, he thinks he's a ghost or a, mm-hmm. or a zombie or, you know, whatever you want yeah, to call that's, it. That's definitely, you know, that's the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? That's uh, the ghost ship. Yeah. The, uh, skeleton crew. Literal skeleton crew. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I say so, you know that's drawn from the legend of the Flying Dutchman, you know the damned ship that's uh, you know doomed to sail the seas forever. Okay, here's the uh, verse that I was looking for. Um, I pass like night from land to land. I have strange power of speech. That moment that this face I see, I know the man that must hear me. To him, my tale I teach. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes, yes. It's it, it's 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 the thing is is. When we finish with the poem, we say that's something powerful. But I was like, "Is this? Is he taught? Is he saying you know, don't kill all the dodos or what is he, <laughs> what's the what? Because it seems because his only action really in the whole poem is just to do that. Yeah, that imp of the perverse, you know, act of cruelty. Or at least that's the only one he mentions. Everything else, he's just sort of one of the bunch, right? He's just one of the crew, and. And everybody dies because of him, right, <laughs> is the idea. The doldrums set in and they can't uh, return. We don't even know, like, there's there's no leadership of this crew. Uh, are we supposed to, I read somebody said it, he was supposed to be the navigator. I, I got the sense that he was a kid, just a, a regular sailor on the ship. Like a teenager? Yeah. 
you know, just like a young sailor. I've never thought about the age of him, but yeah, that would make sense, I guess. So, you know, mm-hmm. he's been wandering around telling the story for a while, if that's the case. Yeah, I, and I think coming back from that adventure would uh, prematurely age you as well. Yeah, that too. Um, so, it, it starts uh, with the Kirk. <laughs> I, I, I looked it up, and I said, what the hell's a Kirk? Oh, it's Captain Church. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kirk. A Kirk is a church. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, that's kind of cool, because C-H is, is kind of like K, and then R- Okay, right? Okay. Um, So they start under a church. They leave the port. The sun's on their left, I guess, uh, coming out of the sea. They go away, and then they come back. It's very um, much the same way. It's it's kind of like a a series of ovals or a series of concentric rings, this story. You know, you've got the framing story on the outside, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. we've got the church, the, the leaving of it, and the coming back to it. Um, and then in the center, you've got the killing of the albatross. Or somewhere near the center. Yeah, anyway. uh, it's, it's pretty early on, but the effects take a while to kick in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're right. There's a certain symmetry, fearful symmetry uh, mm-hmm. to it. <laughs> Different poem. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Um, yeah, so I, I see there's some sort of power there, but... Uh, what are we to make of the actual, uh, adv- like, they've got, they're going, are they going to Antarctica on some sort of expedition or the polar region for an expedition? It, it, it's never stated, right? It's just, he's, he's just a mariner. He's, he's like not even in charge of steering the ship or anything, right? And, you know, I'd be really tempted to, um, I think Frankenstein ends up on the North Pole. Yeah, mm. if 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 it were that, I would be really tempted to tie them together. And obviously, that doesn't work for a number of reasons, you know, temporarily. I, but it sure would be fun to, you know, it's the expedition <laughs> that's going to chase Victor Frankenstein, and and you know, all this stuff happens. Ah, well, it's, it, it precedes it. <laughs> yeah, it does. I know. Yeah, it's like I said, that, similar. It's yeah. kind of similar. Um, and you know what? Actually, that's not a bad comparison. Now that you think about. This framing story in Frankenstein, right? Well, yeah, exactly. There is that. Because mm-hmm. that serves as a warning... Uh, oh, sorry. The internal story of this creature and Frankenstein serves as a warning to the mariner. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he's the guy who's trying to make the polar expedition. Robert Walton. Walton, right. Yeah. Um, he t- decides to turn his ship back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and save the crew. Um, I found it. It's a. It's um. They end up heading into this at the South Pole because of a storm. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the storm blast came. And he was tyrannous and strong. He struck with his overtaking wings and chased south along. So literally, I assume they'd be going around the Cape of Good Hope, mm-hmm. uh, also the Sea of Storms, and they're blown off course. Um, and you know, end up in the in the polar wastes. What what about the uh, what about when we're in the polar wastes? We see the ice breaks before they get there, and then the ice breaks after they leave it as well. It, it seems like they see the blue—I guess they're icebergs—and then later on, they're freed from the ice. Is that right? Sure, it's global warming, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of. 
Well, actually, it's one of those things is kind of, um, I know um, around this sort of time, or just before, uh, the, the great mariners were trying to find the north, uh, the northwest passage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea that you, you could get to the uh, the states by going up around the northern polar regions, but one of the hazards was the sea would literally freeze around you, and leave you you'd not just be calm but stuck and yeah, you'd freeze to death before it would actually, um, you know, melt enough for you, the force of the wind to break the ice to push you on. Right. Um, I see. Is that is kind of like it's the ultimate be calm stuck in the polar waste. There's um, there's stuff I do recognize when they're there, like there's. Uh, the aurora, either I guess it's aurora australialis, the southern lights, sure. right? Mm-hmm. But but then I think that's immediately followed by the eels, and I thought that that the maybe the way he was described, well, you guys are calling it eels. Is it sea snakes? Is that how it's actually described? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I I was thinking that it was like a reflection on the becalmed sea of what you see in the sky if you're looking at the Northern Lights, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, as I was rereading this, you know, I, I was wondering on that note, you know, how much of this actually actually happened. I mean, yeah, all the stuff with the sailors revitalizing and all that stuff. Himself seen that easily in the middle of the ocean. You know, this guy was dehydrated. Um, you know, <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. It, you can read it multiple ways for sure. Yeah, it's one of those uh, maritime law is full of very strange stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Weird yeah. things happen at sea. <laughs> that's that's my taking on it. Yeah, are they real? Are they not? I don't know, but certainly even in the twentieth century, I mean, you know, you can find you, you know sailors tell will tell you strange stories about things they see at sea. Um, I mean, it's kind of a the. Uh, the witch's death fires dancing on the waters and <laughs> he describes and it's kind of um, you know whether these are kind of all weird like atmospheric effects like the aurora or like St. Elmo's fire mm-hmm. um, yeah now uh, another so I guess then they would sort of be aware that it's it's a natural phenomenon would, would you think by that point yeah. Oh, it's one of those. I think as as sailors, they would be aware of things like Saint Elmo's fire, like the aurora, but at the same time, say super sailors are a superstitious breed. The it, yeah. I mean, it's easy to mock, you know, as landlubbers sat safely at our desks, who you know might risk a bit of RSI. But you know, <laughs> when you're a sailor, you know, you're putting your life in the hands of the natural elements, mm-hmm. and uh, that's why you know mariners have always been superstitious and always will be because. You know, this old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. There's also no atheists at sea. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, you really are. Sea is the god. One, yeah, one, one, one wrong breeze and you're in a host of trouble. <laughs> well, I think, um, yeah, go ahead. And they sort of seem to link kind of, uh, you know, these, the strange natural phenomenon. They link it to, you know, a cursed spirit that's following the ship. That's, mm-hmm. you know, it has them in its thrall. Um, there's a kind of, you know, a higher power that needs to be satisfied or evoked um, you know to get them free of the of the pole yeah so at the end of the fifth part of this this ballad we get the the first hint of the spirits right i guess the spirits are mm. it's called voices um angels is is putting two 
too much into it, I think. It seems more pagan than that. It actually reminds me a lot of uh, the, the, I guess, Ariel in The Tempest, you know, sort of the these beings that only some people can see. Uh, Ariel, and there's another one that doesn't get as... Ariel does all the work in The Tempest, but um, there's a couple other spirits mentioned, and or they do something, ghosts, etc. And then they start talking, and they, of course, they talk in rhyme as well. Um, even before we know what they're, you know, they're distinguished, it says, and this is very interesting, because they're, they're not full of knowledge. It says, is it he, Quoth One? Is it the man by whom died on cross? Okay, so it, this, this is why people think it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a retelling of the story of Jesus or something, right? With his cruel bow, he laid full low the harmless albatross. The spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow, he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? It sounds cool. What does it, it mean? It really does, yeah. That was, that was pretty opaque to me, too. I'm sure I'm sure it means something. I'm sure it's important. <laughs> Mr. Dim Moon, the yeah. spirit who bideth by himself in the land of mist and snow, he loved the bird that loved the man who shot him with his bow. Um, well, <laughs> it is kind of just some spirit of the polar regions, um, what Dickens would call a, a genius of the winter weather. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, or alternatively, it is um, the dread theme that Lovecraft described in his, uh, one of his sonnets, which said, Deep in my dream, the great bird whispered of the rocky mound that lay in the polar wastes. Oh. Um, which is actually the tip of a monstrous being uh, in the poem Antarctos, which nice. I think deliberately echoes this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a kind of by him who died by the cross, that kind of that sort of gives you a clue. Kind of the spirit that's speaking is um, swearing by a god not familiar mm-hmm. to itself, but one it's familiar to the crew. As if you know, oh, by Jove, mm-hmm. <laughs> is this the is this the man? You know, um, I mean, I, I do think it is kind of the, this, the spirit. It, the albatross is the avatar of the spirit of the polar regions, and you know, it, it deigns to let you know to let them go, and then as you know, they they kill the albatross. Oh, thanks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have earned my unending wrath. Except it does end, right? It's, so it, 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 the end of that uh, section. So the other was a softer voice, as soft as honeydew. Quoth he, man, quoth he the man hath penance done, and penance more will do. And then in the next stanza, we get the actual description of these two voices. Mm. Um, and, and they're curiously ignorant and what is this a ship? I haven't heard of ships before. It's like one of them is like a sort of a naive ship, uh, mm. a naive spirit, and the other one's like, I know a little bit about ships. I'll tell you. <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of reminds me of that Tolkien story, uh, Leaf by Niggle, mm. um, where mm. the two voices are trying to decide what uh, once once Niggle finally goes on his journey, and he's sort of in this. Well, it's basically purgatory, and it ties in pretty well with with this and the voices are talking about him and deciding you know, what what's to be done with him. Mm-hmm. That's that's an interesting comparison too. Um so one of the things that also makes this sort of a, it's the first book a uh, first uh, poem in lyrical ballads 
And one of the things that's weird about it is that it doesn't seem to follow the same philosophy as, uh, at least not at first blush, the, the philosophy that you see in other poems. Like, I really do like um, uh, We Are Seven. Yeah. Um, it's got, that's a William Wordsworth one, right? That is a tearjerker. Yeah, mm. um, it's a tearjerker, but she doesn't see the, no, the, and that's what's wonderful about it. it. No, it's it's not a tearjerker in a sad sense. It's a it's a joyous tearjerker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, she. We can pity the poor girl in a certain sense because she's insane, right? She's lost her entire family. Uh, her mom's not doesn't seem to be mentioned. Her father doesn't seem to be mentioned, but um, she does. Uh, she, I guess she mentions her mom in passing, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, two of her brothers have gone to sea. Two of, or two of her, yeah, two of her brothers have gone to sea. Two uh, live in Conway, and so they're practically uh, dead. Yeah, the, wherever Conway is, it's not nearby, right? Yeah. Uh, and then uh, there was Mary and uh, her brother, um, and I think Mary caught a cold, or the other one got a fever. And one died, and then by the time the snow came, the other one died. It doesn't actually say died. He went away. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're buried 12 steps from her door. Uh, I guess, uh, is it supposed to be Wordsworth who's talking to this little girl? Or the narrator? Yeah, it's the narrator. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So the whole philosophy behind this is that she doesn't seem to think it's a big deal that they are no longer treading the earth. Right, she right. goes and eats her porridge with her brother and sister. She sings songs to them. Um, this is uh, we would say this is you know we got to get this. We always say this you know he needs help when <laughs> 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 treatment. He needs to be in treatment. Um, does she need treatment? She's pretty happy. Yeah, um, I, mean, I don't know. Do you want to take that away yeah, from her? Yeah, yeah. but. Uh, that that philosophy that we're looking at it wrong. I think that that's what uh, Wordsworth and at, at least Wordsworth is saying. Uh, maybe uh, because I was, I was in my research for this, they were saying that Wordsworth and Coleridge were living in each other's pockets. They were like so in sync. Yeah, Wordsworth was being appreciated by Coleridge. Coleridge was being appreciated by Wordsworth, and they just. Uh, you know, when one marries uh, some sister, the other one marries the other sister, right? It's <laughs> yeah. like they just spend all their time together thinking about doing things together and thinking, it, like, we don't even know who wrote that introduction, right, uh, at the beginning, I don't think. I'm pretty sure it was Wordsworth, but I won't swear to it. And, uh, well, I think in the later one, that's true. Okay. But in this introduction, I don't know. It doesn't, it's not attributed. But in, in any case... Um, they are trying to present sort of a united front. And in that later poem, it's, or sort of the later edition, it does say stuff like, here is, uh, what do they call it, a call to arms or some sort of manif- manifesto about uh-huh. how countries of the romantic type is going to be written. I guess they didn't call it romantic. Well, of the type we're writing yeah. is going to be written. Um, but do you see a united sort of, uh, holistic sort of view of what, like, how do you see the connection between these two poems, guys? I um, uh, see I, it easily. I think they're coming at the same thing from two different. I think that's their their stated goal. You know, Wordsworth is going to handle the um, the natural world, and Coleridge is going to handle the the supernatural. And I think it's you know, they're 
their whole point is that they are they are one and the same. You can get to appreciation of of the supernatural through appreciation of the natural, and and vice versa. Mm. It, it also, to me, on a more frivolous note, it shows which one of them was taking the opium. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's. Not to be too frivolous, but you know, it is a matter of record that Coleridge actually hired a local ruffian to stand outside the apothecary to stop him going in yes, buying laudanum. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. you, know, uh, um, you know, and this pair, they were very much kind of like a pair of rock stars almost yeah. in the way that the later Romantics really would become kind of like mm-hmm. these proto rock star figures, Byron, yeah, Byron in particular. Yeah, was- Pretty much rewrote. He wrote wrote the you know the textbook on them. You know that would be followed by you know Ozzy Osbourne, mm-hmm. Marilyn Manson, <laughs> the Rolling Stones. You know Jerry Lee Lewis. You know he's, they're all taking pages out of that romantic he's book. The Bosphorus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. climbing Mont Blanc. Yeah. 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 I mean, I they they have. Did you college and was have a great accord? But Coleridge to me is always the more interesting. Um, partly, I think because. He wrote a kind of a lot less. Wordsworth could seemingly just turn out an epic verse in his sleep. Oh, the and did so. he, he did it. Yeah, he did yeah. it three times or revised it three <laughs> times. <laughs> Whereas, like Coleridge, really, had, you know, well, he had to struggle to keep off the smack and among <laughs> other things, and that, you know. Um, but his work has a kind of an intensity and a kind of a visionary quality. Whereas mm-hmm. Wordsworth has a visionary quality, but it's an intellectual one. Where Coleridge's um, visionary quality is, you know, it's a Gnostic one. It's one he's lived and seen and breathed. Yeah, it's visceral. Yeah. Uh, mm. I heard uh, in the discussion of In Our Time, they were uh, the BBC program talking about lyrical ballads. They mentioned that it, it, the they were like because they had similar backgrounds and they appreciated each other a lot. It was like uh, Lennon and McCartney. They you know, one wow. of them's more the rock star mm. than the other one, but they're still both rock stars. Mm. It's, uh, it's it, so it, it's this book that cemented that, right? This uh, lyrical ballads. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It was really the only because they they drifted apart um, for various reasons. I I can't recall at the moment. Yoko Ono got involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Um. Well, anybody want to talk about the hermit? Because I want to know what <laughs> what's going on there. I mean, he's a symbol of natural, you know, the the synthesis of you know living at one with mm. nature. You know, he's he's a symbol of of the ideal, I guess, the romantic ideal to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an overgeneralization, but I, th- I think that's why he's there. Um, you know, Herbert kind of shows up and said, "Okay, this is this is what all that means. Um, you don't have to live like that anymore. This is you know, this is your this is your task now." So this is on the return uh, voyage. He's coming into the into the harbor. The ship is uh, is uh, what happened to all the dead men? They're about to sink into the ocean, right? Mm. Uh, the ship just conveniently sinks right before, <laughs> before they. Hit the uh, you know the one man steering the ship back to shore. It, it does have sort of a ghost ship element going on there. Um, he's come back from you know <laughs> traumatic events, um, and then there's this hermit on the shore, right? 
and I don't want to say he's Tom Bombadil, but <laughs> I was thinking about Tom Bombadil a little bit. All right. Well, that was, well, that well he, he is kind of like a, na- a natural priest in that same way, mm-hmm. I think. You know, he is that kind of, he is, he is a hermit, and hermit does have that kind of gloss of um, uh, being a, uh, a wise man in retreat. And it is kind of, he sort of gives the, the mariner his absolution, the sort of, he's appointed by nature to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's strange, it's strange because, you know, hermits aren't supposed to go hang out down at the dock and see what's going on. Um, but in the same way, uh, Tom Bombadil technically is not a hermit, right? Because he's got, he's got a wife, or mm. at least a girlfriend, a live-in girlfriend. Yeah. Um, and she, she, I mean, the way... She seems to act. It's almost like she's a precious flower that can't come out of the vase. Um, in this case, this guy is like, oh, I got to go down and <laughs> deal with this stuff. And he, he's, <laughs> the spirits came and whispered in his ears. Yeah. Yeah, kind of in the same way that the mariner is called to grab certain people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, the that maybe that's a nice connection because I, I imagine I, I've seen the Gustave Doré picture uh, of this. Um, of the guy, the, of the the ancient mariner, and he he does look sort of like a homeless dude who's crazy. Yeah. Um, it, it's he's wandering the streets though, so technically he can't be a hermit. Right? Yes, sort of have to be by yourself, off alone, to be a hermit. No. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know because her, hermit, like we think, hermetically sealed, is like it's like separate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cut off or uh, not in connection. I don't know. Do those have the same root? I'm, uh, I'll have to look that up later. Mm-hmm. I'm curious now. Oh, shreve me, shreve me, holy man. The hermit crossed his brow. And I, I thought crossed his brow is is almost crossed bow. Right? Hmm. <laughs> crossed yeah. Brow. Yeah, yeah. Say quick, quoth he, I bid thee say, what manner man art thou? Or with this frame of mine was wrenched with woeful agony, which forced me to begin my tale, and then it left me free. Since then, at uncertain hour now, oft times and now fewer, the anguish comes and makes me tell my ghastly adventure. (laughs) I love love forced rhymes, they make me Uh, sad. I pass like night from land to land, I have strange power of speech. The moment that his face I see, I know the man must hear me. To him my tale I teach. The loud uproar bursts from that door. The wedding guests are here. But in the garden bower of the bride, the bridemaid singing are. The hark, the little vesper bell, which biddeth me to prayer. The wedding's over, right? O wedding guests, the soul hath been alone with a wide, wide sea. So lonely twas that God himself scarce seemed there to be. So who's saying that? A wedding guest, this soul hath. Is that the boy? The three-year child uh, person? Is it the Um, narrator of the poem? uh, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe it's supposed to be us? Um, A wedding guest, this, this soul hath been. Alone on a wide, wide sea. It sounds like it's supposed to be the mariner. So lonely twas that mm. God himself scarce seemed there to be. But it's not clear. And then it's, oh, sweeter than the marriage feast, t'was, tis sweeter far to me to walk to get 
together to the kirk again the church coming back right mm-hmm. it, this is the third church or maybe it's the same church who knows that would be interesting. I, I always assumed it was a different one, but yeah, I assumed it was too. But I mean, there's no, no, way, no way of telling. Yeah, <laughs> to walk together to the kirk and to and all together pray while each of his great father bends, old men, babes, and loving friends, and youths and maidens gay. Youths and maidens are capitalized. Farewell, farewell. But I tell to thee, thou wedding guest, he prayeth well who loveth well both man and bird and beast. It's very, uh, let's all be in harmony with nature. And yeah. Don't kill all the things of the earth uh, for no goddamn reason, maybe. <laughs> he, he prayeth, well, he prayeth best who loveth Beth, all things that great, and all, this, is, this is in the British prayer book or whatever. All things both great and small, right? Is not all creatures great and small? Yeah, that's it's a separate hymn and it's kind of, it, I'm fairly sure it must take its inspiration for its first verse from from this. Interesting. Um, from dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all. That's very much in that yeah, that hymn. The mariner whose eyes whose, whose eyes are bright, his beard with age is hoar. H O A R means white, right? They're gray, yeah. Yeah. Is gone and now the wedding guest turned from the bridegroom's door. He went like one that had been stunned. And is the sense forlorn? A sadder and wiser man he rose. He rose the morrow morn. He got up and dealt with his life the next day. <laughs> um, are we sadder and wiser after re- reading this poem? I'm usually wiser and happier. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> yeah. yeah. Say, glad that didn't happen to me. Mm, yeah. Jesus, that was pretty traumatic. Yeah. Um, sadder in the sense, though, that I. The wedding guest is for the wedding guest. It's sadder because uh, he's pretty innocent at the on this this whole romantic notion kicked off by Blake about innocence and experience. Yeah, mm. um, you know he started off at a point of innocence, and well, he hasn't experienced this directly. He, he practically has, um, and so he's definitely experienced. Well, he's sadness. had the kind of. It's had like almost like a secondary experience because the mariner's been on this yeah. this strange journey and encountered spirits and vengeful albatross demons. Yeah, the, um, <laughs> the great spirit Antarctos that lives in the polar waste and <laughs> life and death and death itself. Um, but ultimately, actually, the mariner has become of that party, as Milton would put it. He is now wandering the earth with this strange power to uh, harangue people mm-hmm. and to pass on his tale probably for all eternity and now he is of that company of that kind of strange... for all eternity that's it's, yeah, same, yeah it's like a he's like uh the who's the guy who stabbed jesus uh judas judas yeah no, oh, no, no, no. That, oh uh oh, the the centurion longinus yeah the centurion yeah Mm. Somebody, I think they said somebody was supposed to be. He might have been Lazarus as well, or is it? Uh, I think it's Longinus, Longinus, or something. Yeah, and but he has to keep living, right? He can't. Yes, curse never to mm. die. Yeah, it's it's a common thing. There's quite a few folk tales. Um, there's one of uh, the, the soldier and the devils from Russia, and that the uh, the soldier finds a means. He traps death in a bag for a ah. while, and that death won't actually take him when it comes to die. So he can never be reunited in heaven with his lost love and his family. And he's cursed to wander the earth. Mm. 
uh, because the Reaper won't go anywhere near him again ever again. Well, that one will um, be a landscape one. Yeah, yeah. But that's, you know, it's, a, it's a common sort of folkloric thing of that. You know, you can do things so heinous, you cannot die. Mm. I think for the wedding guest, it's kind of he wakes an older, wiser man. Um, mm. You know, it's partly he gets absorbed the experience, but also realizes like, what the hell did I meet yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of it's. It's just as kind of the mariner has been transformed by an encounter with these, you know, higher powers. Um, so to, to a lesser extent, by meeting the mariner, who is now an agent of those powers, the wedding guest is transformed too. He's, he's been shifted out of that kind of chew the cud kind of consciousness most of us have. <laughs> Everything's fine, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Bloody hell. This, you know, this, it's a bigger, more dangerous world out there. Mm. Uh, do you do you see any connections to I guess the later poem, uh, the dream inspired one, Kubla Khan, the opium dream inspired one? Well, it's there's it's certainly that our, same sort of scope to it, but yeah. Kubla Khan is so fragmentary. It's kind of you wonder where Coleridge is going to go go with it, <laughs> and it's kind of damn that person from Porlock. <laughs> <laughs> The power of the imagery, the language and imagery, it connects them for sure. Um, mm. You can sort of see that it's written by the same Yeah, guy. yeah, exactly. Mm. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Yeah, because that, in that one, it's, it's... I mean, this one seems... There is a plot holding it all together, but the plot is pretty simple. I mean, it's, the guy goes on a boat, uh, shoots an albatross, um, is punished for it, and goes home. That's the plot. Right. Uh, it's, it's classic horror story morality, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, but on a, on a cosmic lyrical scale. <laughs> yeah. So it seems, it seems like the, the, the power of it is not in the plot. It's in the, it's in the scenes, the descriptions. Like, you can pick out stanzas and just say, look, wow, look at this. This is beautiful. Mm. And, and I think that that's also true of Kublai Khan. And it seems like mm. that one's even less connected Together, there doesn't seem to be a plot, right? There's just, there's just, duh, it's just there, you know. Yeah. Well, Kubla Khan is almost like it's 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 fragmentary, but it's like a dense little seed, from which mm. I sort of tend to think, you know, Middle Earth springs, Narnia springs, mm. Lord Dunsany's fantasies, yeah, and it's his, very dense. you know, elegant mythologies. That's all springs from um, from Kubla Khan. Um. I mean, I think there's an awful lot springs from ancient Mariner because it just has this. The plot is simple, but it's just the uh, it's the atmosphere and the the scope of it. It's you know, it's kind of it's a globe trotting tale from mm-hmm. an era when most most stories would concern something very small and local. Mm. Um, you know, it has kind of you, from this you know, the voyages of you know undertook by you know the brave inventors and heroes of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells Spring. Yeah. <laughs> H.G. Wellspring, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) The origin of all science fiction is the H.G. Wellspring. (laughs) Exactly. It's true. (laughs) This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.